Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science, your weekly shot in the arm of all things science. New research, discoveries, things that you didn't know before that make you sound smart at a dinner party. Be vaccinated against ignorance. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's it. Right. Absolutely. With nil side effects. With nil side effects. Oh, wow. Well, almost nil. This week, I am going to be talking a little bit about breast milk and this amazing new antimicrobial drug that has been developed from a protein found in breast milk. I mean, as if breast milk wasn't amazing enough already, but this is Mm. new medical research that sort of makes it even more fascinating. So I'm going to be talking about that. How about you, Stu? Well, I was was inspired by Chris's story uh, about the sun um, last week, and I was pondering on where do all these elements come from? You know, we're talking about fusion in the sun. Mm-hmm. And where do all the other elements come from? Because our sun only makes helium. Um, but there's obviously a lot more elements in the universe. So yeah. where did they all come from? So I endeavoured to find out, and I did. And it's really quite interesting, but I'll go into greater detail So you've later. been travelling around the universe looking for these elements. That's right. Well, <laughs> I didn't have to travel far. They are pretty much all here on Earth. Tell me, on your travels, did you come across any new planets by any chance? Well, um, no, but I, I heard I heard a rumour that there might have been one in the neighbourhood. There is. There's been a bit of news, a bit of buzz lately about a planet nine discovered in the in the outer solar system, our solar system, not like the you know other stars and things. And yeah, I wanted to find out what this is all about. So I spoke to Jonty Horner, who is an astronomer at the University of Southern Queensland. So we've got an interview with him coming up in a bit, where you'll find all about planet. Nine or Planet IX, whatever I'm, you want to call it. I'm looking forward to hearing whether Jonty is in Team Pluto or not. Well, well, I think we've moved on from Pluto, definitely. Oh, that's very sad. Yeah, it's an impression I get. But um, there is a there is a um, a, a force to get him, to get Pluto back. But we basically, I think, one of the things with Planet Nine is trying to distract people. Here's a new planet. Take this. Look at the new shiny planet. That's right. Forget <laughs> about that one. Here we've got a new one. Excellent. Well, um, that'll be a brilliant introduction to a new member of our solar system. Stay tuned. So some pretty amazing new research has just come out this week, which details a new and innovative defense against bacteria. Which is great news. Mm. Because so is this going to save us all from the antibiotic Armageddon? Maybe. Oh, look. I mean, probably not. It's probably going to have to be a multifaceted approach. And no, it isn't a fungus like penicillin. Uh, it's actually a bioengineered compound that's been isolated from human breast milk. So hang on. They bioengineered it from a compound they found in human breast that's milk? That's right. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, it's pretty amazing and... I feel like we should be celebrating breast milk every day. Mm-hmm. But today we have one extra reason to celebrate breast milk. Well, so tell us what this is all about. Okay, okay. Well, look, I'm just going to give you a bit of a background about 
breast milk to begin with. Okay. Now, everybody knows it contains a lot of very important things and it helps in providing uh, nutrition, obviously, growth and development for babies as well as immune function. Now, breastfeeding babies has really far-reaching benefits for mums and babies, like breastfeeding your baby decreases its chances of sudden infant death syndrome by 73%. Wow. It decreases the likelihood of middle ear infection, lowers the risk of diabetes, asthma and eczema, just to name a few things. As you both probably know, human mammary glands have the ability to produce different types of milk. So not all breast milk is the same. I have heard this. I yeah. have personally experienced it. Mm. So, so tell us, what are, what are these different uh, kind of flavors yeah. or varieties? Or um, Well, it's not so much a flavor, but... I was reading that, for example, the fat content of milk changes over the course of a feed. Okay. Being the highest, like at the end of the feed or just after a feed. Oh. Yeah, which is sort of strange. I thought it would be the other way around, but there it is. But so when there's it, a lot going on. There is a lot going on. And when a baby is first born, the milk that comes out is called colostrum. So this, this is a really special type of milk and it's sort of, it's only excreted for the first four days or so. And... It's packed full of all sorts of immune proteins that coat the baby's sort of gastrointestinal mm-hmm. tract and helps the baby survive. Um, now, in the colostrum is a type of protein called lactoferrin, uh, and it's a major part of the immune system. It's present in humans like in saliva, in apparently tears as well, um, and it's got a function in your sort of like first First line of your, defense. Yeah, first line of defense. So right. it's, it's sort of like the first step of the immune system in stopping things getting into your body. Yeah, absolutely. And it's in a really high concentration in breast milk and it does quite a good job of fighting and killing bacteria, fungi and viruses. Hmm. Yeah. Now, all of these terribly helpful characteristics are due to a small fragment on the lactoferrin. It's a small fragment of amino acids, which is pretty much just... Um, you know, the building blocks of proteins. Now, researchers wanted to look at the micro, at the antimicrobial component of the lactoferrin. So they started looking at the functionality of these amino acids, Mm -hmm. these fragments, and how they actually worked to kill the fungi and bacteria. Now, what they found was that these small fragments were capable of grouping together and then once they grouped together, they could target bad bacteria or fungi cells um, and kill them. And the way they did that was by piercing their cell membranes and literally spilling their cellular insides all over the floor. Right. Maybe not literally all over the floor. But so they yeah. basically just poke holes in the cells of the they just poked, invading organisms. They, they just poked holes in the bacteria and just um, just killed it instantly. So with this in mind... The researchers then went one step further and have re-engineered these protein fragments from the lactoferrin into a sort of tiny building block which can Mm self-assemble. So they've pretty much replicated the idea of a virus, like a self-assembling virus. And now this self-assembling sort of virus can go into a human body and, and kill, selectively kill bacterial cells over these human cells. But they didn't just stop there. This sort of self-assembling bacteria, bacterial killer can also be used as a sort of drug delivering systems. The idea of gene therapy is mm-hmm. you have like a virus 
delivering DNA into a cell and changing the genes of that particular cell. Mm-hmm. The researchers are looking at the possibility of using these these fragments as deliverers of gene therapy into the human cells while also keeping bacterial populations in check. So, for example, you might want to deliver gene therapy to someone with um, something like sickle cell anemia. So you can bioengineer these fragments to have in their DNA to have gene therapy for that disease and then they'll self-assemble, go into the human body and do one of two things. If they see a human cell, they will deliver the gene like into the human genome or they'll see a bacteria and they'll kill it, which is which is something that we don't really have in our arsenal at the moment for drug delivery is that ability to kill bacteria as well, which is pretty awesome. And, of course, like any drug developed these days, you have to think about resistance. And the great thing about these this particular gene is that they kill the bacteria instantaneously. So the bacteria have very a very short amount of time to build up any defences or resistance to this particular drug. So it, it, sound, it sounds like it's almost a, like a physical action that the, these fragments are having on the bacteria. So it's kind of difficult to think of a way they could even develop a resistance because they're basically just getting stabbed by stabbed these by these, these so how do you, you fragments? Know, yeah, unless they develop a stab-proof coating. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, unless they somehow develop a stab-proof coating and then multiply and then, you know, mm. build up resistance that yeah. way. Well, it depends how it's stabbing the holes, I guess. I yeah. mean, sometimes these things like use particular chemical pathways to do their, their stabbing. I mean, there are some chemicals that, that, will, that do actually like completely break down the cell wall and they're usually like highly toxic sort of acids and alkalis and those sort of things. Yeah. But this one, yeah, depending on what the mechanism is, I guess. It sounds really promising. Obviously, there's quite a lot of development in different systems to to sort of look at and a lot of research to be done before anything goes on the market. But it's just pretty amazing to think that this whole thing came from human breast milk. Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and I am talking to astronomer John T. Horner from the University of Southern Queensland. Welcome to Lost in Science, John. Thank you. Now, we're talking about the presumed discovery of Planet Nine in the solar first planet this size if it's been out there all this whole time? Well, the thing is, firstly, it's a prediction. So we're saying that here's something we can't explain. There's something very unusual going on out beyond the orbit of Neptune. And the best way that we can explain it, this new work says, is that there may be a planet out there that we haven't seen yet. So the planet's been predicted not because we've seen it directly itself, but because of its potential effect on other objects in the solar system. So that's a little note of caution initially that this is one explanation and the best explanation for something we see. Until we actually see the planet with our telescopes, we can't say for definite it's there, but this is a prediction. The reason we've not found it before is simply that this thing is so far away. Now, the further away something is from the sun, the less light it receives from the sun and the less light that's reflected back towards us. So every time you double the distance something is away, you reduce the amount of light it receives by a factor of four, and the amount of light we receive back is also reduced by a further factor of four. Now, Neptune, the most distant planet we know of in our solar system, is 30 times further from the sun than the Earth is. And the planet we're talking about here is probably about a factor of 10 times further away again. 
Now, 10 times further away means only one hundredth of the light is received by the object, and we only get a hundredth back, so that's 10,000 times fainter. And if you've got to search the entire sky for something like this, there are more than millions of stars of that same brightness out there to be confused with. So it's just like looking for a needle in a haystack. If you don't know where to look, the likelihood of you finding it by chance are very, very small. You said that it's about 10 times further out than Neptune is. How far out does it go and how long does it take to get around its orbit? So it's on a very unusual shaped orbit. If you follow the predictions in this paper, the orbit's not circular. It's not like the Earth's orbit where we stay pretty much the same distance from the Sun with a little bit of wobble. The Earth is essentially on a circular orbit. This is on a very eccentric orbit. What I mean by that is that it's closest to the Sun. It's significantly closer than it is when it's at its most distant. There are a number of different solutions that could all fit the data. You could have the planet on an orbit, typically always with a closest approach to the Sun, about 200 times further from the Sun than the Earth. So that's a bit less than 10 times the distance to Neptune. At its furthest from the Sun, though, you're probably looking at this being between 500 and 1,000, maybe even 1,500 times further than the Earth is. Now, this is where the problem is, because one of the rules of how things move under gravity is that the further away you are from the thing you're orbiting, the slower you move. So this planet, if it's out there, will spend nearly all of its time at its furthest from the sun and only swinging briefly before receding back out into the depths of space. Now, if it's a thousand times further away from the sun than the Earth is, that's vanishingly faint. That's very, very challenging to find. And that's probably why we've not seen it yet. And how confident are you that this actually is a real planet and not something else? I wouldn't say 100% confident until we find it. What we have currently is a theory. We've got this story that the best way we could explain what we currently observe is the existence of this planet. We're calling it Planet X or Planet IX, the ninth planet. So we predict where the planet is in the sky and go look for it. We can disprove the planet's there by searching for it and not finding it. But if we keep searching for it and we don't find it, well, maybe it's there, but it's a bit too faint for us to see yet until we find the planet. If it's out there, nobody will be 100% certain, 100% confident that it really is. Are we sure that this is actually a planet? Because we had the, the whole Pluto fiasco. I understand from the definition of the International Astronomical Union for a planet, it needs to be uh, in orbit around the sun. I think we've got that. It needs to be nearly around and needs to have cleared the neighbourhood around its orbit. Do you think this planet will satisfy those three criteria? It's a really interesting question. So, again, taking one step back first, the reason we have these definitions of planet, asteroid, dwarf planet, all the rest of it, is in order to make our understanding of the universe simpler, in order to make it easier for us to tell the stories about what's out there and how it all works. And you have to put somewhere a definition, and you have to say bigger than this is an object of this type, smaller than this is an object of that type. And the analogy I give between planet and dwarf planet is a bit like the analogy between teenager and adult. So we have in law this arbitrary age at which we say somebody stops being a child and starts to be an adult. They can suddenly drive, they can suddenly go and drink, and they're all slightly different ages depending on where you are. Now, there's not really actually any difference between someone who's 16 years and one day old and someone who's 15 years and 364 days old. But we put this line in there to separate out the groups because there's clearly a difference on mass between children and adults, and we need to account for that. And so the definition of a planet is something very similar. It's to do with the gravitational influence of the object on the region that it's in. 
So the more massive you are, the more quickly you clear your area. But the further you are from the sun, the slower that process is because you're moving more slowly. It takes you longer to do this. So it may be that this new planet, and everybody's calling it planet, hasn't yet fully cleared its area, but it's on the way to doing it. So if this is found, it'll probably lead to another solution, another debate about what exactly is a planet, how we define it. And what it'll probably lead to is actually a further clarification of how long you need to take to clear your area in terms of your number of orbits around a star. Now, I assume it's too early to start thinking about names, really, though I understand that people have been calling this one fatty with a PH. Is there any other thoughts about what it could be called eventually? There's all sorts of ways that people can choose to name things. So the eight planets that we have in our solar system, obviously the Earth is the Earth, The other planets are named after ancient gods in mythological terms. The satellites of those planets are named, each planet has its own naming system. So, for example, the satellites around Uranus are named after characters in Shakespeare's A Midsummer's Night's Dream. You've got Ariel, Umbriel, Titania, Oberon, Miranda, Puck, all named after that play. And so what people tend to do is try and give things of a similar type a similar kind of name. So my suspicion would be... that was followed once again. They'd probably look for a deity. I think the planets Jupiter and so on are from Roman mythology. Jupiter, Mars, Venus. I think they're Roman mythologies. My instinct would be that if it was definitely a planet, they'd be pressured to follow that same mythology and look for something out of Roman mythology of a god of the depths of the underworld, something to denote that this is far away, cold and dark. Like um, Pluto, I believe, was god of the underworld in Roman mythology. Exactly. So that's unfortunately taken. I mean, I saw somebody joking around on um, Facebook that this should be called Pluto, P-L-U-T-W-O, which I thought was quite cute, but obviously wouldn't work. I mean, maybe in the modern era of the internet that there's actually a poll run or something like that. Because I know recently the International Astronomical Union ran a poll to name the first exoplanets, a first batch of planets, so that the general public could have a hand in naming them. I don't know if they'd do something similar or whether it would be the privilege of the discoverer to name it, as is the case with solar system objects for the smaller ones. Well, let's hope that it does turn up in the next few years, but um, let's not jump the gun, I suppose, on this discovery. Absolutely. I mean, it's a case of fingers crossed. It will be a fantastic discovery. I'd be very, very excited if we find it. And Australia is probably quite well-placed to help in the search because it seems that the path that is predicted for this planet around the sun has a very good chance of putting it in the densest part of the Milky Way. That's another reason it hasn't been found yet. It may well be lurking in the densest, richest star fields on the sky and therefore be much harder to spot. Now, we in Australia, along with colleagues in South America, are ideally placed to look for things in that part of the sky because it's the southern sky. So it may be that in the future, Australia takes a leading role, jumps in the driving seat and helps find this planet if it is actually out there. That would be fantastic. Well, thank you for talking to us, John T. It's an absolute pleasure. So we have an occasional segment on our show, Lost in Science, which I like to call In Our Element, 
where we talk about different elements from the periodic table, which incidentally over the, uh, over the last couple of months, um, just got bigger. It did. Yes. Uh, with the acceptance of four new elements filling out the seventh row of the periodic table. One, should, we should have a housewarming party for the we, four new we should, there is, there is a, periodic table. There is a petition to have one of those new elements named Lemium because Why? it's a heavy metal element uh, ha, ha, ha. and Lemmy died just before Christmas. So those four new elements are not found in nature because they're very, very unstable and they exist for a very short, brief fractional period of time under experimental conditions but most elements are relatively stable and so each element is a particular atom uh, which has a number of protons and the same number of electrons so hydrogen has one proton and one electron helium has two protons and two electrons and so on through the periodic table and because you have neutrons to take and there's neutrons and all other there's a whole lot of things why that makes that but the neutrons um, in the nucleus with the protons that's That's right Um, But the actual process of forming elements Mm -hmm. is called nucleosynthesis because it's all about the nucleus Mm -hmm. of the atom. That's the Mm. important bit. If you've got enough protons sitting around, the electrons... Electrons are easy to come by. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. they're just floating around all over the shop. But look, nucleosynthesis happens mostly in the core of active stars where new elements are formed by the fusion of existing elements. But some elements formed almost immediately during slash after the Big Bang. So there was so much going on at the moment of the Big Bang. Uh, The pressure and temperature was such that subatomic particles were forced together. So all of a sudden, out of apparently nothing, uh, we had hydrogen, deuterium, helium, lithium, and small amounts of beryllium. And they've effectively always existed. You know, the amount of time that they didn't exist is so tiny that we can't really even measure it. And before they were there... There wasn't time as we know it, so it's very difficult to measure that as well. Deuterium, by the way, is actually a form of hydrogen with a neutron as well as a proton in the nucleus. Um, They call it heavy hydrogen, and they use it for uh, nuclear research and things like that. They make heavy water using deuterium rather than... And tritium or tritium is also a form of heavy hydrogen. Yes, which didn't uh, appear in the Big Bang. Ah. It appeared much later. So everything bigger than those, uh, those four elements had to wait a really long time. They had to wait until stars actually formed before they could uh, appear. They, they, they just didn't exist. But um, were they waiting? Like they were waiting as, you know, hydrogen and helium? There was, yeah, there, was, there was heaps and heaps of... There's, most of what was around was hydrogen and helium. Yeah. That was the most common stuff. And there was a little bit of lithium and a very small amount of beryllium. Comparatively, we're still talking you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of It's a big universe. No one's denying it's, it's, it's a, a massive, universe, yeah. massive universe. So they actually had to wait until stars bigger than our sun had formed because any star that's the size of our sun or smaller can pretty much only produce helium. There's only enough pressure and energy in a sun of that size to produce helium. All the bigger elements need much bigger Uh, stars to produce the Mm -hmm. conditions under which they form. So in stars larger than the sun, elements of larger atoms are produced through nuclear fusion in the same way, all the way up to the 26th element. Can anyone tell me what that is? Anyone? Anyone? Um, Iron? It is iron, yeah. So 
We can get good one, Chris. Thanks. We can get iron. Everything up to and including iron can form in stars. But stars just a bit bigger than our star. Quite a lot bigger than our sun. So there's stars up to. It's it's estimated that stars can be about 150 times the mass of our sun, but they can be quite a lot larger in volume because they sort of swell and contract. Yeah. And I think um yeah I think even the the sun will start burning other things or have different kind of process when it gets older and turns into a red giant. It then sort of goes in different phases of its existence and starts burning up a new fuel. Yeah, the pressures the pressures change, and as things uh, as things get heavier, they sort of get drawn to the centre of mm. the sun or the star by uh, by gravity as well. But we know that there's obviously heavier elements in the universe than iron. Um, so where do they come from? And uh, as I said, stars are very massive, and they think the limit is about 150 times the mass of our own sun. But in looking this up, I did find that larger stars have been observed. There's one that's about 265 times the mass of our sun. That's incredible. But they think that it didn't form as a star. They think that several stars sort of crashed into each other Mm. and formed a bigger mass, which is, you know, in star formation terms, that's pretty unusual. It's like a supergroup. Yeah, like a supergroup. There's there's one that they're observing at the moment, which is in a a nebula, Mm -hmm. and they think it's going to go hypernova very soon which is something that they've never actually observed, but they've theorized. So the energy to fuse atoms into heavier elements is limited by the energy at the core of the star, which is limited by the size of the star, which is limited by the amount of atoms in the star and the amount of gravity that's present in the star. So gravity pulls matter in, which creates energy as the atoms start fusing in the middle at the core of the star. And that energy that it produces pushes matter out. So it's sort of constantly pushing and pulling pushing and pulling so it creates this sort of back and forth motion and as heavier elements are produced they accumulate in the center of the star due to gravity and lighter elements get blown off on the outside but eventually the outer layers of a star will collapse towards the core which create the conditions that we have called a supernova so basically what happens is that all of the matter in the star gets condensed towards the centre of the star, which creates all sorts of weird conditions. And there's neutrons flying Mm. everywhere and free protons that get combined with existing atoms and they just get all sorts of odd and weird numbers of protons in the core of these nuclei, which then, you know, will eventually be able to attract electrons and form heavier elements. But of course, what happens when a star goes supernova is that all this stuff gets drawn into the middle and then eventually it sort of gets drawn and pushed and drawn and pushed for, you know, several times in some cases, maybe hundreds of times. But this all happens really quickly. So basically what it appears that happens is the star shrinks down really small and then explodes. And then there's almost nothing left of the star itself. So the supernova explode and all the newly created heavier elements get shot off into space and get absorbed into gas clouds, which then form into new stars and new planets. And this has all happened numerous times Mm. over the billions of years that the universe has been around. So this is how we've got, you know, all these elements that make up all the interesting things that we see all around us. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. And that brings us to the end of our show for another week. Thank you for tuning in. We have heard about antimicrobial breast milk. 
we've heard about the new planet, mm-hmm. and we have heard about our stardust. And yeah, and, and what exactly made up that new planet and the breast milk when we come down to it. Thanks for tuning in. We would love to hear from you. Please get in touch with us. You can find us on the Twitter and the Facebook or drop us a line on email at lostinsci at gmail.com. Lost in Science is recorded at the 3CR studios of Melbourne and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And that's all we have time for. We will see you next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get... Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.